please turn in your Bibles to, uh, to the passage uh, on page 975. We're turning to Amos 6. Uh, yesterday I went to the Presbytery Women's Ministry event up in uh, Bear, Delaware, and I was surprised as I didn't have to say anything. I was just there as a representative of the equipping committee of Presbytery, and uh, I, I was introduced to a lady who was in our church last week. Uh, they had come from up in, up in Maryland, and they had come to church here last Sunday, and there she was, comes up to me, and she's asking me some questions about the sermon last week. It was really fascinating to hear how our ministry actually expands, that, that the gospel is going forth, and it's affecting people. Uh, in this location, God sends folks our way. Now, we're going through, in preparation for Resurrection Sunday, we're going through the book of Amos, and isn't that exciting about the resurrection in Amos? I want to tell you, it's really fascinating that last week we came to the Lord's table and I was able to show you how the day of the Lord that was talked about by Amos is understood even at Calvary and at the crucifixion, and that's what we remember. Today we're going to be looking a little differently. We're going to be looking at chapter 6 portions of Amos' sermon. Amos was a preacher. He was really not known for his seminary degree because he didn't have one. Uh, he was known as a farmer or a shepherd, and he was in a field when he grew up that was not far from where David grew up when he was in little Bethlehem. You have to go a little further south to, 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 uh, to find out where he was in Tekoa. And what you find is that Amos is powerful not because of his upbringing, but because of the one who gave him the words. God put the message in his heart and on his lips. And we're going to listen to Amos' sermon in chapter 6. We've already gone through a lot. Just to give you a little context, if this is your first time here today, uh, Amos is speaking uh, some words of, some difficult words to the northern kingdom, to the people of God who were not following God. And so it would be applicable to people today to say, if you're not walking close with God, you might watch out because the words of Amos reveal the way God views those who love God are those who claim to love God but don't have a life to show it. Now, this is the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word. Amos chapter 6, there's 14 verses. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kelna and see, and from there go to Hamath, the great. Then go down further to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Oh, you who put, oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on their beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. They eat lambs from the flocks and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sounds of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore... Now's a shift. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. 
The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate the hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it, and if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relatives, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, they shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? And he shall say, no. He shall say, silence, we must not Mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. And then there's this last segment of the passage. Some questions are in it. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Carneum for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Libo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Let us pray. God, I pray that you'll take this interesting message, help us to understand it, apply it to our lives even today, and help us to be ready to come to your table because of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Wow, for some of you that may have been the first time you've ever heard Amos chapter 6. Some of those names you might not have been familiar with, I've even been to Israel and I didn't know a couple of those places, had to look them up on maps, you know. Amos is an interesting character. But let me start off by saying this. We are all getting ready for the resurrection of a celebration that's on the horizon. And our culture doesn't share with us the same view of it. If you go to a store and you start buying things for Easter, what are you going to buy? Easter candy? Easter eggs? If you're going to buy decorations, what are you typically going to find at Walmart or, or some of the other places? You're going to find lots of pastel colors and you're going to find all these beautiful things that promote spring. You see, the whole idea of new life is inherent in the resurrection story. Which, by the way, I, I'll say this again and again so that you get it. There is no resurrection unless there's first day death. Good Friday is the focus of Passion Week. When he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might get the righteousness of God. The substitutionary atonement is the key. It sits there right smack dab in the middle of all of time and says this is the most important thing. The resurrection just validates it. It's an exclamation point that says that atonement was satisfactory. It was the key to satisfaction for God the Father. Now, so we have all that coming up, but the secular world doesn't see the resurrection. They don't see new life like that. They just see new life in reproduction and fertilization. That's why they have rabbits. That's why they have eggs. That's why they promote little babies. And they, that's why all the flowers with the buds, all those kind of things are in front of us. Think about it. I want to make sure you focus on the new life that we have in Christ. Now, as we come together, Amos was focusing on a culture which wasn't focusing on the right things either. Amos' culture, that he was dealing with the people of God, this was not the best of times. In some ways, it was, and in some ways, it was the worst of times. 
The king in the north is actually having a pretty good economy. People seem to be fairly well-to-do. And and the rich folks especially, they are taking advantage of the poor folks. Does this sound like um, we could send some of our politicians over there to campaign? You know, this kind of issue always seems to happen because people are sinners. But he was dealing with, interestingly enough, he was dealing with a people who were divided. They had folks who were in one party and folks that were in another party. Now, the party to the north, they had, 12, they had, 10, of the t- 10, they had 10 of the 12 tribes of Jacob. And the party to the south basically had the two, Judah and Benjamin. Now, when you think about the division of the, of the land, it was because a civil war took place in 931. When the end of the glory days of Solomon had come, uh, his son was going to take over, but his, he was the next one, and he... He had taxation without representation, and he, they had a civil war that took place there, a revolutionary war of types. And so then Jeroboam, who happens to be from the tribe of, Ju- of Joseph, uh, he was a descendant of Joseph, and so he ends up taking the northern tribes and became their king, and Jer- uh, Rehoboam took the southern too. This is the world in which Amos is reaching. People are divided. The northern ones don't have anything to do with the southern ones. In fact, they try, to get, they try to get separated so much, they didn't build a big wall and make somebody pay for it. They just ended up creating new buildings and new worship centers. They said, we don't want to go down there anymore to Jerusalem. We're going to do our stuff up here. And they modified things, and they were very creative. But God was not pleased, because we're only free to worship God as God Tells us, And you can read about that article on the back of the bulletin. You'll see the regulated principle of worship. You don't come to God just any way you want to. You come to God on his terms because he's God and he's the one being worshipped, not us and our agenda. Now, when you, when you understand that this is what's going on, you can see why the front picture of the bulletin has that, that on there. Um, Amos is reaching a crowd that is at ease in Zion. Those are the first words that you find in chapter 6. He's dealing with a crowd that is asleep at the switch, so to speak. And the picture on the front of the bulletin is another place where people were asleep. Now, if you saw in the background, who's in the background of the bulletin? Jesus. So where is this taking place? In the Garden of Gethsemane, right in the midst of the Passion Week. And Jesus had bid his disciples just to stay awake and pray with him. Apparently, prayer was a little bit hard. I'm hoping that on this day when you've lost an hour of sleep that you're not thinking that preaching is hard to stay awake either. I really want to encourage you to don't slumber. And that's the whole point of the message. Uh, Spurgeon, when he did a sermon on this passage, he talks about the scourge of slumbering souls. When you start reading this, then you start to realizing, I don't want to go to sleep on God. I don't want to just say, oh, well, I've had enough. You see, this is the, the call to wake up. And this particular passage is kind of interesting because uh, this is the first sermon I've ever been able to do this. I had a guy in seminary do it, so I'm excited that I have one now today. Listen to the three points of this message. God uses the language of woe, God uses the language of go, and God uses the language of no. Easy points. Wish I had this back in seminary. Would have gotten a high grade for a, 
a neat form of alliteration. Now, Pastor, did I come up with this? Uh, actually, Amos gives it to us. If you open your Bibles, you'll be able to see the particular passage. Uh, first, the first word of chapter 6 says, woe. If you look at the first word of chapter, or verse 4, what do you see? Woe. The language of woe is repeated here in Amos' sermon there in chapter 6. Now, if you go down to verse 7, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who... The language of go. And then if you look a little bit further down, if you look at the end of verse 10, there's a question that comes up and it's in parentheses or it's in quotation marks. Is there still anyone with you? And he shall say, no. I think you'll remember this sermon for a while. And I pray that it's not just because of the words woe, go and no. I pray that God will open your eyes up to be able to see how this works and awaken you from the slumbering that is right around the corner for those who lose sight of Christ. Point one, the language of woe. The language of woe is just a fascinating way of saying, beware, it's a warning. Uh, This morning in Sunday school, we talked about the woes that follow the Beatitudes in Luke's gospel. But when you hear a woe, if you say, woe is me... I was just going to, you know, if we took a poll around the room, how many of you have used the language of woe in your own life? We don't use it anymore. We're not afraid anymore of things, are we? You don't say woe is me anymore. But when you're dealing with a holy God, it is appropriate to say woe is me. Isaiah was quick to do it in chapter 6. When he saw the Lord, he, he fell on his face and says, Whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people that are unclean. It's really fascinating, the language of woe. So we find it repeated twice in the text. I just wanted to be able to explain it for you a little bit. As you open your Bible and you see in verse 1, he says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, who feel secure. Now, as I go through, I want to just explain these and then I'll make some applications. When he talks about Zion, that is not in the northern kingdom. It's it's one of the little peaks that, that is right next to the Temple Mount. Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. So when he says, woe to you that are in Zion, he's actually talking about those that are in Judah, his home area. So he's preaching to the northern people, but one of his message points is, be careful, woe to you that are back home in Jerusalem. Then you have the mountain of Samaria. Now, I don't know about if if you're familiar with this, but when I preached about Joshua bringing the people into the land, the promised land, And they came over at Gilgal, and then they went in, and they set up an area. And there's two big mountains, Ephraim and and Gibal. And if you look there, uh, this is where Jacob's well is. And it is a fascinating place. And those mountains right there by the valley of Jezreel are great areas of protection. So when he talks about the mountain of Samaria, he's saying that's a great defensive position. It's almost like if you went to Normandy, if you were on the, uh, the Hitler side, they had the high position. They had a great position of strength. That's what the people in Samaria had. If you read through the, little, the passage a little bit more, there's a couple other places, Calney, Hamath, and Gath. These, these are not really exciting places. If you went with us on a tour back to Israel, we probably wouldn't go to those. Now, you might want to go to Gath. 
but Gath is not in a real safe area. It's down there on the coast. So just to paint the picture for you, when Amos is preaching this message, he says, you guys, it's that northern place up there. It's like saying to you, it's from Maine to uh, Mississippi. That's really what it, the picture is like. It's like he's saying, well, if you go up in northern Syria, you're going to find that's where that top city is. Then Hamath is a little further south. It's north of Mount Hermon, where the snow cap is. And then if you go further along the coast, all the way down to the five cities of the Philistines, Gath is the predominant one. And so when he mentions these, he's, he's just basically saying, from north to south, do they have anything better than you have? And then explaining the passage just a little bit more, uh, in verse 4, he mentions ivory. Now, where do you get ivory? All of us know it, it comes from the elephant tusks. Uh, do you have any elephants around to get the ivory from? This is a rare thing. So this means it's fairly expensive. And when you hear ivory, it's, talking of, it's not that they built whole beds out of ivory, but they, they made it like what we have in your own bedrooms. If you have a backboard or if you have some kind of uh, fanciness to your, uh, to your bedroom set... This is what they had. They had enough money to go ahead and purchase ivory and put it inlaid around their bed set. Just think about that. That's what he's saying. They're very well to do here. And they have comfortable bed chambers and they even have couches that are long enough that they can stretch out on them. And then if you look a little further, they mentioned the lamb and the veal. Now, what's the big deal about those? It's to make you hungry while we're getting ready for lunch. The emphasis here is that these animals were very easy to access. How far did they have to go to get the little lamb? They had to go over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house? No. They went to their backyard. They went to the pen where, it was, where these, these animals were kept. They were young animals, which means they didn't wander very far. And then if you look a little bit uh, down the path where he talks about the musical instruments and about the, uh, the idle tunes, did you take notice of those? Where, do you, where would you go today to find those kind of tunes? I was going to say, I'm so innocent. I don't know where to find those kind of tunes. No, actually, it sounds a lot like going to a bar where people are enjoying some, uh, some, some ale and they're, and they're singing the tunes. You know, it's just like watching the Lord of the Rings when the little hobbits get up on the table and dance and sing. That's kind of what he's talking about. They have so much time to waste and he says, when it comes to alcohol, um, how do they drink it? By the bowlful instead of by the cup. Do you see the uniquenesses of this? So because I wanted to explain that text, I can quickly show you uh, why Spurgeon came to the point that when the language of woe is used, he is warning people because of their excess abundance not focused on that. It's because they are not focused on God. So there's five different explanations. There are the presumptuous, the procrastinators, the self-indulgent, the careless, and the indifferent. Woe to you if you fall into one of those categories. The presumptuous. They trust in Zion. They feel secure down in Jerusalem. Or they trust in their defensive position because they've been doing it. They've got it all positioned right. They feel secure with their 401ks or their 403bs. Or they're, they're secure with their investments. Are you like that? Woe to you if your faith is in that. You're presumptuous. Secondly, from verse 3, the procrastinators. These are the people that, that know the day of the judgment is coming, but it's far away. It's almost like they've taken a trip down to Jamaica and they say, no problem, mom. No worries. 
They are procrastinating. They're saying, oh, yeah, there's going to be a judgment. And, yeah, we all know there's going to be a judgment, but it's not today. Woe to you if you procrastinate. Don't put off the day of salvation. Uh, Like Felix did in the Bible in Acts chapter 24, when Felix was, uh, was examining the Apostle Paul. He listened to him for a little while. After some days, Felix came with him. This is in chapter 24, verse 24 and 25. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusella, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, notice the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, and he said, but go away for the present. When I get the opportunity, I'll call you back. Woe to you who procrastinate. There's no evidence that Felix ever came to faith. He just put it off. The third thing that you find in this text that Amos is bringing out to the northern people of God is the self-indulgent. These were people that had abundance. They were drinking their wine by the bullful and they were living, it, living large on their lovely couches and their ivory-laden beds. I was glad they weren't sleeping on ivory. That wouldn't want to make me be jealous of the self-indulgent. But if you think about the New Testament, Jesus told us the story of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, where the guy says, I have wealth. I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger. Take ease, your soul. Eat, drink, and be merry. Do you feel that ease? Do you feel that slumbering of the spiritual soul? What happened to that man? Thou fool, today you shall give an account. Now think about that for a moment. That's just the third woe that he said. Uh, The fourth one was the carelessness. The one who just strums away on his harp, who drinks wine, you know, in excess. They have no thought for their souls. They are just humming these worthless songs. I don't know if you ever find yourself like that. Maybe that's why we need CR in church. But if you're just wasting away your life, you're careless, you're missing out on the opportunity. What we said, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you do what? That you present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, not to be careless and just strum your life away. By the way, that's not against music. It's about the carelessness of someone's soul. Fourth, or fifthly, is the indifference. Because when he finally gets down to it, he says, but... And you saw that in the text as we were reading it. You got all these things going about you. And then he says, but you don't care. You don't grieve for Joseph. You don't grieve for Joseph. It's as if you have gotten to a place in verse 6 that you don't even care about the plight of others. You know, when the issues that come up in your life, like the Planned Parenthood thing, when they were showing the selling of babies, did you care or did you not care? Oh, no, that doesn't bother me. You know, you might not know what to do about it, but the question is, are you careless? Not just, not just carefree, but you don't really care about the plight of others. Do you love? Are you concerned? Do you even know anybody that's a non-Christian that's going through something? I mean, when you think about it, that's what he's bringing up here. How sad it is that you don't grieve for the state of Joseph. And that basically means God's wrath is coming down on these northern kingdoms, on the northern kingdom of Joseph. And you guys don't care. 
Woe to you, the language of woe. <laughs> that is pretty powerful. And it applies to us if we fall into those categories too. Secondly, um, before I go there, I, I wanted to be able to read just a, a portion of what Spurgeon wrote when he wrote this, this uh, sermon. He, he says, Spurgeon saw the presumption of Zion and Samaria. He said people were trusting in their good works. He that trusts in his own works leans upon a broken reed. Is that you? He, uh, and as well, attempts to cross the storm-tossed ocean upon a child's paper boat. He says, or they tried to go to the mount of heaven on a philosopher's balloon. Or he says, as well attempt to put out a fire ablazing in a prairie by carrying in your hand a little water scooped from the neighbor's stream. Thinking that you'll put out that prairie fire. He says, as hope by any means to get rid of your own iniquities by doing better or, by, or of thy past sins by future holiness. He says, you're never going to get past the woes, these sins, on your own. And hence the language of go. The language of go is a language of judgment. It's found in verse 7. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go. Now, the interesting thing here, I talk about the language of judge, judgment because when they go, where are they going to or where are they going from? The language of go is not what Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The language of go, when God is speaking, he says, get out of here. It's like a parent saying to their kids, go to your room. Okay, in this particular case, it's a whole lot worse. Go away. This is serious business. God is saying, you are going to go into exile. You're going far away from, from me, from my presence, from your home. In our vernacular in the world today, people often say, go to hell. Why do they do that? I'm sure none of you have ever said it. Why would you even... Consider those words because the implication is a, is a statement of judgment. You go where God's grace will never touch you again and you will be able to reap that kind of feeling for eternity. What's it feel like to be away from God's grace? I hope you don't know what it feels like. But I'll tell you what a miserable thing to tell someone to go to hell. In this text, there's even grace when he says, you're going to be the first that goes to exile. But the whole point of this is that God is no respecter of persons. The soul that sins will surely die. The word death is, is the same idea of going away from God's grace. It's separation from his holiness. You have this, this language. It's been used over and over and over. But the first time you see it is in Genesis, where Adam and Eve have sinned. And what does God say? Come on over here. He says, get out. Get out of the Garden of Eden. Get out. And he made sure you're not welcome back in. A flaming sword was put up there. Or the sword with the flaming sword. The, the angel with the flaming swords. This cherubim. The same image that was, that was uh, put on the uh, veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. Get out. You're not welcome here because you're a sinner. And a holy God cannot dwell with sinful people. Get out. This is the language of go. And this is why when we go into all the world, 
We want to tell people that God's message of salvation is to say, come. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. But the language of go is the language of judgment, and, and Amos tells us that this is what's happening. It's going to show up. It's pretty serious stuff. When I look at Spurgeon's words on these, after he's told us that, that we can't do better and that our future holiness is not going to be able to wipe away our sins, the woes in our life, he says, away, away, away with these gaudy rags. Before long, human toil at the loom, night and day. But your work shall be rent in pieces, and not a shred of it will be left. For you are spinning nothing but a spider's web, which justice shall tear in pieces. And like Adam, whose fig leaves could never cover him, so you'll never be able to, to, to cause God to say, to, tell, to stop God from saying, go away. You can't do it. You can't do it. The language of no. There's one more point. When you look at this particular passage, this is not the language of judgment, nor is it the language of warning. It is the language of confession. When you listen to the storyline again in verse 9, you're going to see that this is what somebody says. This is what comes out of somebody's mouth. And it could easily be your mouth. And if ten men remain in the house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up and bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is, any, is there still anyone with you? Is anybody caring about you? Is there anybody else that's going to be by your side? Is there anybody that's going to come and rescue? And he shall say, no. The confession of somebody who is in despair. Somebody that realizes that there's no hope in his own merits. There's nothing that's going to fix it. He's seen death all around him. He's seen all these people die. And he's there cleaning up their mess. And somebody just yells out, are you alone? Of course, the obvious answer is yes. But is there anyone to help? No. This is the message that the prophet gives. And it's a message of despair. It is a message of hopelessness. And that's why the judgment is coming. If you look at the rest of the passage, you can see, as I I was reading at the beginning, um, there are a lot of people who realize that God's judgments are coming. If you look at verse uh, 13, you who rejoice in this, who say, lo, debar, Have we not by our own strength captured this? For behold, I will raise up a nation, O house of Israel, the God of hosts, and this nation shall oppress you. It will will make you go. Now that's the reality. Now I want to make an application here so we're not stuck. We're coming to the communion table. How do we get to the cross from there? First of all, I want to talk about the language of warning. If you see the language of warning, I want you to translate it as a language of love. If somebody cares about you sticking your hand on the hot stove, do you call that meanness or niceness? It's niceness. It's love. Don't be the idiot and stick your hand on there and burn it. When somebody loves you, they're going to come alongside of you and they're going to help you. Now, most of the time, since they're sinners, they don't do a good job of doing it with sweetness and kindness. Most of the time, if I've done it with my kids. Stop! Measure of urgency. 
you know, if you went ahead and did it logically and say, you know, if, you, if your hand is only at 98.6 degrees and it touches something that's 214 degrees, it's not going to be a good thing. Can you imagine talking like that? Okay, the whole point is the prophet is coming and it's a message of love. And who is he speaking on behalf of? God. God is saying that, that there's a warning. Look at, your, look at the beam in your own eye. Look at it. It's pretty close to seeing. You should be able to see it. The warning is there because secondly, the language of go. This takes me to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the front picture of the bulletin. Because Jesus is sitting there on his, or he may be on his knees at that rock. And Jesus is saying, Father, isn't there another way? Isn't there another way? Do I have to go to the cross? Do I have to go? And God the Father said, there's no other way. There's no way to pass this cup from you. You have to go. Jesus was willing to go into exile, to go to the cross so that we won't have to. You see, the warning is for us to see his love. And then we get to see his greater love expressed when he said, I'll go for you. And then the language of no. It's changed to the language of yes. When you are asked now, is there someone who can help you? Is there someone who can take you to the other side? We had Len Stewart's funeral. We're having Carol Stubbs' memorial service. When we go to those funerals, we don't have mourning like others mourn. We have hope because we hear yes. Is there someone who could take care of Carol? Is there someone who can take care of Len? And the answer is yes. Is there someone who can take care of you? And the answer is yes. And when Amos preaches this sermon, there is hope that is revealed there from Zion that one is coming who will be there and he will save his people from their sins. Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer is asking that question. Is there any, any way for me to be saved? Is there some help I can get because I can't save myself? The earth was shaking and everything was going crazy and he knew that, he, that death was looming. All of us know that death is looming, just some of us don't realize it's that close. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is you can't do anything. But Jesus can. Rest in him. Your slumbering soul should not be in relation to God, but it should be in relation to your works. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Does this make sense? Oh, Lord, I pray that you will apply this message to our hearts today, that the message of 